Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Amir Kafaji. Amir is a labor reporter for Document, journalism created with and for immigrants and how policy affects their lives. He's of Egyptian and Puerto Rican descent and grew up in a Muslim household. He's with Documented as part of the Report for America program. Hi, Amir. Thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So normally I ask people to tell their journalism origin story first, but with you, I want to go a little different route. I want to examine your heritage because it's an important part of your story and it seems somewhat unique. Can you explain it as a means of introducing yourself? I know that you go by the term Arab-Rican. I'm an Arab-Rican, New Yorker. That's what I like to always say. It's, it's, It's a mix that you only find in New York City and they, they like to call New York the melting pot. I'm it. I'm exactly what people think of New York, right? My parents met in Jackson Heights, Queens. My mother is a second generation Puerto Rican. So she's a New York Rican from the Bronx. And my father is, you know, first generation immigrant in New York City. And he, you know, he met my mother and, and I was the first, I was the first born. <laughs> and, and both your parents are working class. Working class. My mother was a homemaker. She stayed at home, raised me and my brother and sister. And my dad was a cab driver for, for most of his life. He, then he worked as a, then he owned a 99 cent store for a while, about eight years. And he, at, at one point he was driving the taxi and he was working at the store and I would grow up in the store with them. And, and after school, I was expected to come and help out in the summers. I would be there all day with him. And then after the store, the rent went up and, and he ended up selling the store. He ended up becoming a private chauffeur. And he did that for a little while, you know, driving celebrities around town. And and then my mother ended up working at Sears and she worked at Sears until they closed down. So there was there, there's a long, extensive working <laughs> class thread in my life. And you're from Jackson Heights, Queens. Jackson Heights, Queens, born and raised. I was born in Flushing Hospital, to be more specific, but I was raised in Jackson Heights. And then I lived in Bayside for a little while, and now I'm back in Jackson Heights. So and cool. just to examine one other aspect of the culture, Arab Rican exposes you to a lot of different things life-wise. I'm curious, were there are there any conflicts between the two cultures? They're very different, and, and there was also a lot of similarities, but they're very different. I grew up in a in kind of in-between worlds, right? So I was never Arab enough nor was I Puerto Rican enough, nor nor was I American enough. So there was all these kind of different threads there. I felt different living in this in this country because I wasn't necessarily what the idea of what America is, or at least what I thought the idea of what an American is, you know, but America is me. I had to grow up and become an adult to realize that. But when you're a kid and you're watching television and you, you, you know, you see this Brady Bunch kind of family on TV or, or full house or something like that, you know, it, it kind of warps your mind. And then my father didn't really, you know, teach me Arabic. I know, I know some Arabic, but, and he, it wasn't big in the house. It was very English based household. So when I would go to my cousin's house, they'd speak in Arabic or they they had a very Arab influenced household. Both their parents were Egyptian. So I would feel kind of out of place. And I go to the Puerto Rican side. Now Puerto Ricans like to have like to party, right? There's a, there's this whole idea. They they roast pigs in a spit with an apple on it and 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 they have coronas. And growing up Muslim, 
all that's taboo. So you can't have that. And that's not part of your culture. My mother had converted to Islam. So it was like you, you're, you know, you're in between worlds and it was, oh, it was very confusing. Now I embrace it because, you know, I, it, it made me who I am today. So it's all important because of what you cover right now. You're working for Documented. You went to Queens College. You studied urban affairs. Both your BA and master's come from there. You were a community organizer. Explain as best you can your journalism origin story. Oh, very complicated. There's many ins and outs and ups and downs. My college career also has been very complicated. So I'll start off. Initially, I started at LaGuardia Community College. And then I had transferred for my bachelor's degree to Queens College, but I was at LaGuardia Community College for three years. And that experience really molded my idea of what I wanted to do in terms of maybe trying journalism out. I had flirted with the student newspaper on campus at LaGuardia Community College. I had from the very beginning ambitions to do big investigative work, especially at that time there was, uh, as we were mentioning, talk, speaking about earlier with the with the Mets at Willits Point is the neighborhood next to the Mets. And there was this development and they wanted to push people out. So I was interested in possibly doing some sort of investigation on it, but I didn't have the tools, the skills, nor the time at the time to really uh, develop that. But I'm jumping ahead, of course. I started out as a as a student organizer. At that time, Occupy Wall Street had happened. The year prior to Occupy Wall Street, I was kind of in a state of limbo. I was working at Chuck E. Cheese for a while and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was going to college, but there was LaGuardia, but there was no direction. And then Occupy happened and completely changed my life. And I got involved with student organizing. There was a movement to try to make CUNY free at the time. And I got, I, I jumped in feet first and got involved with that. From there, I got involved with different groups that were doing community organizing, anti-gentrification work, anti-police brutality work. So I was getting involved in this whole scene and this world of of activism and organizing that really opened up my eyes to what was behind injustice. I had always seen injustice in my life, right? I've seen my father struggle to make ends meet. I I've I, I know what it's like to have to struggle with rent and struggle with not making enough to but but somehow managing to put food on the table. I saw all that in my life, right? But I didn't understand why these things were happening and how these things were connected and what were the systems in place behind the scenes that were causing so much distress for working class people. And becoming an organizer and an activist, you begin to learn about, okay, this is why people are homeless. This is why people are getting evicted. These are why certain neighborhoods are underdeveloped and certain neighborhoods are developed, right? When you learn about redlining and all these kind of things. I, I learned about the history of unions. So I, I got really immersed in this world. And Something I always wanted to do was be a journalist. This is something I always somehow had a passion for, but it didn't seem like an economically viable path for me. Neither was organizing or activism, but I was in I was in that world and I did it because I had a belief in it. But I didn't know how to be a journalist. There's really like, if you're a working class person, it's like, how do you just start reporting? How do you go about getting your, your feet wet in that, in that industry? And it was something I was putting off and putting off, but I would come into contact with journalists. And it was something that, you know, it always attracted me, always something I wanted to do. I wanted to expose wrongdoing. I wanted to be a muckraker. These things were something that, those things were something I really wanted to to pursue, but I didn't know how. And um, let's let's know too that you were reading ahead. Jimmy Breslin at an early age. Oh, I had I learned about Jimmy Breslin from, from I, I, I had a, 
an interest in the son of Sam stuff. And that's how I kind of came in contact with Jimmy Breslin. And he was like, you know, he was a reporter that was hosting Saturday Night Live. You know, <laughs> he was at, there was a time in this country where reporters were like celebrities and, and he was as big as it gets. And he's a New York Queens based working class reporter. So I had an interest in that already. Anyway, so I started pursuing studying urban studies and urban affairs, and I really had an interest in in doing that. But I didn't want to be a city planner because I was still doing anti gentrification work, and it seemed like all these city planners were helping push through gentrification projects or projects I thought were going to cause gentrification. So I began to write kind of research papers for class, and they all had some sort of I felt they were kind of journalistic because I always was interested in if I was going to do these papers, I was going to try to do something new, not just, you know, turn something in to get a grade and and and, and be done with it. I wanted, I saw, and my writing was getting praise from professors. They, they liked my language and they liked my use of language and they thought I was doing interesting stuff. So I had, I started flirting with PH to maybe I was going to pursue a PhD, but that takes a long time talking about a working class person trying to do a PhD. <laughs> anyway, one day I just decided I was going to maybe write two papers, right? I'll write a paper that's more academic that I can submit to class. And maybe I can write a more journalistic style paper. So I, I bought an AP style book and I learned as I went how to kind of craft a story and, and kind of what a journalistic story would look like. I started reading journalism more like as to study it rather than just reading it to get the news and study style and study and structure. And then I started going online and seeing who I could submit to, find what people that had open pitches. I'd go online, go on Twitter and whatnot. And I think I started writing op-eds at first, which was a little easy. And not to bore the audience, but long story short, I got my first journalistic gig at City Limits News about, it was about public housing and, and Governor Como. And they paid me $500 for it, $500. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I got paid $500 for it. You know, Jacobin had paid me like a hundred bucks for a couple of the stories I did that were like research papers, which was great, but $500 is city limits. I was like, if this is, I, if, if this is, you know, other outlets pay 500 or more, I could probably you know, make a living freelancing somehow. So, and that was it. That's, that's what started my career. And all these years later, I'm, here I am. So as you said, here you are, you're now with Documented. What can you tell us about the mission of what they, what they do and what you do? Let me tell you, I've worked with a lot of outlets, you know, being, I was a freelancer for five years. It was by far, and I had freelance with, with them prior to joining the team. It was by far one of the best experience I had as a journalist working with them. They always paid on time, which is really great if you're a freelancer. And the editorial you know, process I found was very encouraging. And they always helped make the, make the piece better. So I had always loved writing for them and working for them. And I started building a nice relationship with them back in 2000. It might have been 2017, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, the mission of Documented it's pretty simple. Help elevate the voices of immigrant communities in New York City. It's a it's an outlet that's attempting to try to bring together all the immigrant voices in, in the city that is made of immigrants and try to tell their stories and, and try to elevate 
the news that's happening in, the, in those communities. Oftentimes, the media kind of, they only talk about immigrant communities when it comes to like immigration enforcement or it comes to ICE or things like that. But we're not talking, you don't see too much spoken about what's going on in terms of their individual communities, right? And how it affects their communities, such as issues of April to one of my coworkers, she did a great story about issues that Chinese immigrants were having to deal with banking. You know, I think that's real innovative reporting. That's not something you're going to see outside of like maybe local Chinese newspapers. We, we a document that we cover things like that. I cover issues, the labor report, I cover mostly issues about what's happening in immigrant communities. And most immigrant communities in New York City are working class communities. So I could tell, talk to story, I could tell stories about immigrant cab drivers and the issues they're facing. I could tell stories about immigrant restaurant workers and wage theft. So all these stories are don't normally have a platform and documented gives those stories a platform. You do people-centric leads a lot. We've talked about this with a number of people who write, because I, th I think these are my favorite kind of things. You were just talking about rideshare drivers, Chipotle, Chipotle workers, nail salon workers, all these different types. And you always cite a very specific example of someone when you're when you're doing that. And I read another piece that you did an interview for where someone asked you, how do you center the local immigrant experience in your work? And I was curious in terms of writing style, how you go about if you wanted to share essentially what you said there. I hope I remember exactly what I said. But... <laughs> do you want me to read it to you? I'll read it to you if yeah, you want. Yeah, remind me. To thoroughly report on the immigrant experience, you have to report on their labor experience because many immigrants are working class people. You just kind of said that. Language and culture may seem like barriers, but if you meet people where they are and allow them to not only tell their own stories, but be active voices, not just passive victims, the authenticity of a piece will come across on the page. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. But to elaborate more on that, New York City is an immigrant is a city of immigrants. They make this city move. They make the, they're the, the, the blood that circulates through the veins of the city, so to speak. And their stories are often not center, central in when we talk about New York. They're often forgotten. They don't have outside of, again, there's a lot of great immigrant news outlets and immigrant newspapers in the city. But in the mainstream media, we don't hear their voices. And my job, I feel, is to help elevate those voices and elevate those struggles. I'm a labor reporter, so I focus on, on work a lot. And I think labor reporting as a whole doesn't get a lot of attention in this city. I mean, in this country in general, let alone the city. And immigrant workers at that are, are, are not getting whatever little labor coverage there is. They're not they're not talked about in that conversation, even though oftentimes when we talk about immigration policy, it always centers around labor, right? If, if you're undocumented, you're more likely to get exploited in, 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 in the labor market, right? Um, that exploitation overall brings the value of work down and, and the value of how much he's paid to work is, and the wages down, right? That that's all labor, right? Often the right wing talking points is that the, the immigrants are taking jobs away from Americans, right? So it's always centered around labor, but we I feel we never talk about the labor. And I feel my job is to try to elevate those voices of the struggle that immigrant workers are doing to be able to make ends meet in New York City and in this country. So how do you come up with the story idea of Basil M, the rideshare driver, or when 
when Sarah Pena Ruiz, the Chipotle immigrant worker, how do you come up with their with the ideas to do pieces like that? You got to keep your eyes and ears open, and you got to keep your feet on the ground. That's how I see it, right? I'm um I live in Jackson Heights, Queens, born and raised, one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the country, not the world. In my neighborhood, I you know I don't know how many languages is spoken, but you know there's Nepalese, there's Bhutanese, there's Tibetan, there's Indian, there's Bangladeshi, there's Pakistani, there's Ecuadorian, Mexican, Colombian, you name it, we got it here in Jackson Heights. A lot of my friends are, 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 I have a lot of, I have an eclectic group of friends in the neighborhood that come from all walks of life and speak all kinds of languages. And, and I try to make it a point to keep myself out there, build connections with community, community groups. I build a lot of connections with labor groups, worker centers. There's never a shortage of stories out there, nor is there a shortage of ideas, I feel. It's not incredibly difficult for me to come up with um, stories because I get stories all, all, you know, sometimes the local Starbucks, I grab a coffee, hang out. Sometimes somebody would tell, give me a tip. People I, I used to organize with who are working in labor unions now give me tips, tell me things that's going on. Sometimes I just take a walk in the neighborhood and I just look around and I read every sign. I read a lot of local newspapers, see, because oftentimes there's always like a nugget or a gem of a story there waiting to be found. I, I try to just stay on the ground, stay alert, try to, try to, I don't like working solely from press releases. Sometimes you have to do it, but I always just try to figure out something innovative, different. I don't like competing. And I, this came from, I guess, being a freelancer all the time. You always felt like you were competing with other journalists. I don't like to do that. I like to find stories that are more, I guess they call enterprise reporting, stories from the ground up. I got a hunch about something. I ask a question about something that looks kind of not legit. Surprising, I get stories from weird places. Like I watch the People's Court a lot. And and surprisingly, there's story ideas because this, these cases are real. And the, sometimes people sue each other over things that are kind of weird. And I got a couple of story ideas that I'm working on. I'm not going to go into that I got from the People's Court. So there, there's all these kind of non-traditional ways you can get stories i sometimes just scroll through pacer or or court documents to see what's what's going on you know about companies or or lawyers labor lawyers i know i'll look them up and see what cases they got brewing so there's all kinds of places you can find stories how many languages do you speak well i speak i speak better arabic than i speak spanish my spanish is slowly improving I'm, i've been trying to learn it as best i can but Predominantly, I'm English, so I, 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 it's funny enough. Sometimes when I have to translate with a Spanish speaker, my mother often is the interpreter for me. Ah, you know, nice. No, <laughs> that's great. Sometimes she'll ask questions that I didn't even think to ask. That that she's like, oh, and then they become like buddies, and I have to say, mom, hold on, hold on, wait, we, let's focus on the story. So it's a big, it's a family affair. When I went to Egypt, I did reporting, and I brought my father along as an interpreter, and it was it's interesting. <laughs> All right. So you you were also reported on a serious, very serious topic that has been in the news recently about migrants being bussed to, in this case, New York City. There have been stories about that recently with Martha's Vineyard and other places that the Texas and governor, Texas and Florida governors have sent migrants to. What was the experience of doing that story like? You did it in August. Very difficult. It was a very difficult story to deal with because the problems not it's not going away it's it's 
I recently there was talks that the the uh, the governor of Colorado, excuse me, was going to send immigrants now to New York. It was very difficult. You know, you're dealing with people that had essentially walked from Venezuela to the United States, essentially walked, and their journeys ended at the Port Authority bus terminal, you know, and and that's if anybody knows the Port Authority bus terminal, it's a very surreal and weird place. You know, what one thing was surprising was it wasn't all doom and gloom. A lot of them came and they had tremendous spirit. It takes a lot of spirit to have to walk essentially from Venezuela to the United States through the Darien Gap where, where there's, you know, the, through, walking through the jungle where there's all kinds of dangers lurking and creeping behind any bush right and they 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 managed to do it some managed to do it with with holding babies you know and, and with children so it's an incredible journey that went that they went through and, and just kind of you have to wrap your head around it because so many were coming in and all of them have those 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 struggles but they came into a city that's completely um inept at dealing with its own homeless population. The homeless population in New York has been suffering for, for years, and the city has failed um, to house them and give them adequate housing. And they, you know, I, I think there was a time where the city was trying to blame the immigrant crisis as kind of like, yeah, this is why the, 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 the system was being pushed to the brink, but the system was already on the brink. The system was not working. You know, if anything, this should push the system to work better, right? It's that we we could house everybody, the migrants coming in as well as the 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 homeless in this city. So it it just it was an inc incredible story that's ongoing. We continue to follow it, but I feel what what was also missing in the in the conversation is our country's inability to deal with refugees and our country's role in creating refugees. I think that that that's really important to know. A lot of these immigrants that were coming, they were Venezuelan. Um, they weren't just fleeing totalitarian dictatorship. The our, the sanctions imposed on Venezuela have been extremely harsh. That's only hurt the working people of Venezuela and, her, and the people in Venezuela have suffered. And that's why they're leaving, you know, and I think that was missing from the conversation. So just to take it back to uh, we could essentially make this about government, too. But when you're reporting on labor, what kind of response do you get when you try to talk to management? Sometimes management's willing to talk. Sometimes they're not. Management, you know, they they have a they have their own their own agenda that they're trying to push. They often say that what I, what was being told to me is not true. It's all it's always the same game. I haven't heard a manager say, "You know what? You're right." Doing <laughs> over workers, and we're sorry, we're not going to do it again. So, that almost never happened. So when that does happen, do you ever feel pangs to go back to organizing? When what happens? When you when you're dealing with when you're talking to someone in management and they say the same things over and over again, do you ever get oh, do, you, do you ever feel the pull of being, becoming an organizer again, or do you view your job now as kind of like you can have a more a greater impact by by being a journalist? The good that's a really good question. I, I think I have more of I, I feel more fulfilled now doing what I do now than I did as an organizer. An organizer is very difficult. And and there's often a lot of similarities between what I do now and organizing in terms of trying to cultivate relationships, trying to gain trust, trying to get people to speak to you. A lot of the skills I had as an organizer I find very it applies to what I'm doing now. So I feel like those tools prepared me for the to be a journalist. Go ahead, Joe. 
No, so so with that in mind, can you walk us through something you've written recently from initial idea to finished product and kind of take us through your your process a little bit? Oh, you want you want you want the secrets. What what's something I've been working on? Well, I'm doing a story now about the Bronx Pyre, that the Twin Park. It's not it's not particularly a labor story, but it's a story that I've been kind of covering since it happened. I don't know if you're aware. In the Bronx, devastating Bronx fire killed last year killed about 17 people, and for about a year, a lot of those families have been struggling. Money was raised; about 4.4 million was raised to help these families. And now we're coming on the one year anniversary, January 9th of the fire. And a lot of these families are still struggling and they didn't receive a lot of that money. So this is a story I did in March, I believe. I did a story how the city wasn't giving the money that was promised to the families. We did a file, we did a story. It got a lot of attention. The mayor promised to pledge even more money to help these families. We're going back now to, to investigate, to see what's been going on. And it seems like it's more of the same. They did get a little more money, but a vast majority of that money is not accounted for. So a story like that, and what I often try to do is prioritize, stories don't just end when I finish reporting. These are, they're ongoing. And what I'm happy about being a staff writer, documenter, what, what makes me happy about it, one of the things that make me happy about it is the fact that I can continue going back to these stories, right? six months later, a year later, and see what's going on. In that time, I can cultivate long-term relationships with a lot of the people. So the tenants at the Bronx fire, I, you know, I have a lot of contacts that I can call up. Hey, what's going on? How you been? I, we spoke so-and-so. Now I want to see what's going on. What's the update? Sometimes they call me. So I've been developing this story since I believe October, September, October. And now, you know, it's coming up on the anniversary. We're going to we're gonna hopefully publish it next week. So that's just, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's just part of kind of like continuing to, to follow up. It's, I believe you have to always follow up. Stories are ongoing. They're not just one-offs. Continue to follow up, build relationships, and, and oftentimes it, it, pro it proves fruitful. And just to complete the circle in that, we were just talking with a reporter from The Trace about the reporter-editor relationship that he has as he kind of goes through, in some cases, considerable work over a period of an extended period of time to put a story together. What is the reporter-editor relationship like for you? Excellent. It's the best relationship I've had work-wise. It's a very open, collaborative relationship. Um, I, I, have, I feel like I'm given a lot of freedom. To, to develop stories and to pursue things that might not necessarily pay off in them. Because not all the time, not every story you you go out, you're set to report pays off, right? Sometimes you have a hunch about a story and it leads to a dead end or sources kind of a flake on you or or things develop where what initially was going on is not going on anymore. It's not news anymore. So those things kind of happen. And I feel in order to be the best reporter I can be, I have to be able to kind of try to follow things that may or may not be you know be fruitful or, or develop into a into a piece and i think if i work that way you know it's like it's like you know you're sifting through gold right you you, you try to pick up as much as you can find and maybe you get a nugget somewhere in between and 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 i think that's what documented allows me to do and the and the, and the editorial process allows me to do is to look for those nuggets
You recently wrote a piece that I saw on NBC U Academy about that there need to be more working class journalists. We we can summarize it in that sentence, but I figured I'm going to I'm essentially saying people should read this article. You tell Thank me you, you want to give more of a preview as to why people should read it. Well, this is a profession unfortunately is become over time has become too elitist. And nothing against reporters who graduate from Harvard or Columbia or any place like that, but they overrepresent the journalists um, in this professional. It gone are the days where the paper boy now becomes the hard hitting investigative reporter. Those days are gone. Now, most to become a journalist, even to try to make money as a freelancer, is very difficult. Let alone get a job, and jobs are few and far between. You know, full time jobs with newspapers cutting staff and and online outlets closing shop. So it's become very hard. And in order for this profession to thrive, I think it has to have an emphasis on working class people and, and trying to get, just like we have to diversify the racial makeup in journalism, we also have to diversify the class makeup in journalism because working class people can provide insights to what's going on in particular communities that may be people who, who are not from these communities that, that are grow up in more of an elite background cannot so i think it's you know i think my greatest asset is that i'm from the community in which i do most of my reporting from and i i represent that community so i'm able to to have a to to, to have a greater insight on what i report one impact of reading that article for me was it made me realize i need to diversify my guests beyond racial and ethnic and age and gender that there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. And that's one of the reasons that you're being interviewed today. Thank you. A report, I want to talk about Report for America briefly. How has Report for America been helpful to you? It's been fantastic, you know. The unfortunate reality is that because it's so hard for, for news outlets to be able to raise the funds to hire full-time staffs, programs like Report for America are able to help with that problem by allowing to pay half of our salary and, and getting us into these newsrooms. Without that, it would be hard to get, I don't know what the current cohort is for, for, for Report for America, but I think it's somewhere in, the, in the, maybe a hundred and something reporters are able to go out in the in, the, in these in these communities and do some really great groundbreaking, hard-hitting reporting. And I, I think, I hope every year Report for America can grow. And uh, I'm grateful just to have this opportunity. What advice would you have for someone applying? Be yourself, be yourself, be yourself. I think, and that's not just for applying with Report for America, but it's for any anything else in, in, this, in this profession. Be yourself, be as authentic to yourself as possible. So I do want to touch on one or two things outside of journalism. You performed in a play and in a work of monologues, if I'm not mistaken. Can you expand upon that? I was part of a show called Beyond Sacred, Voices of Muslim Identity, which was went on tour for about four years or five years, if I'm not mistaken. And we went to maybe 17, 18 cities across the country. And it was a, docu a form of documentary, a documentary theater. Uh, it was directed by Ping Chang, who's an award-winning playwright. And what more can I say about that? It was It's about my life as well as four other Muslim Americans who grew up in a post-9-11 world. 
Well, the point and, was to show you've got a well-rounded background beyond just yes, the written word. Yes, exactly. And and we were collabor collaborators in that process. So it allowed me to see the country in a, in a way that I never got to see before. And it, and it allowed me to really own my story and who I am. And when we were talking about authenticity and be yourself, it allowed me to be myself and, and express myself in a way that I never would have had an opportunity to. Because theater is another uh, world that seems like, you know, how, how it seems so daunting to get into. And here I was, I was given this opportunity. So that was really empowering. And then I did another show called, oh, it's escaping me now. <laughs> Gun Country, excuse me. I did another show called Gun Country, which was a work of monologues about people who had experienced gun violence. My father was was shot while he was working as a, as a chauffeur. He survived, but it, it impacted our family tremendously. And, and, and it, it was often we hear about gun violence, but we don't hear about the aftermath. Here I was able to write. I wrote the monologue and performed it. And, and I was able to talk about what happens in the aftermath of, 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 of the victims of gun violence who survive. So I think it was it, it's, and it, it's also in a very interesting show. And you have a book coming out. What can you tell us about that? It's a fascinating book. It's not complete. I'm still working on it. It's been one of the hardest things I've ever did in my life. I it's 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 very stressful, and it's a story about how the Amazon labor union came to be and and where it's going. If that makes any sense, it got a, what happened with the Amazon labor union was a historic victory that got a lot of national attention. Oftentimes, I feel like a lot of that attention has been myth making. I'm, as a former labor organizer myself and community organizer, I'm interested in the how, what goes on to the day-to-day, -day, the good and the bad, the the handsome and the ugly. And I think that's going to be encapsulated in this book to the best of my ability. When's it coming out? Sometime in March, um, depending on when I finish it. <laughs> very nice we'll be on the lookout so lastly we salute you for your good work and we ask that you do likewise is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work oh i like a lot of old journalists isn't that something but i'll tell you it's just a couple that i thought of i like mike elk he's a friend of mine as well and mike elk is the founder and editor of payday report which is i think one of the best labor organized the labor news sites in in the country that does it they have a great strike tracker and they they talk about a lot of labor battles occurring in this country that are often underreported so mike elk's doing great work kim kelly's another great labor reporter who i also know and she did she's done great work about the striking mine workers and she's been staying on top of that and i think you should bring her on the show if you haven't already she's fantastic mike i know elk. the name yes yeah she's great and uh, Claudia Aponte, I hope I'm saying her name right. She's, I don't know her that well, but she she works for the city and she's a labor reporter in New York City working for the city. And often our stories kind of, you know, cross paths and, but, you know, so she could be like a competitor, but I think she's doing great work. And I think, you know, more people should know who she is and follow her work. Amir Kafaji, thank you for taking the time to join us. We will certainly be following your work and best of luck. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Report for America is accepting applications to be part of its core member program for 2023-24. The deadline is January 30th. 
Report for America helps local newsrooms report on undercovered issues and communities by sending reporters and photographers to newsrooms across the country. It's a two-year program with an optional third year. This class begins work on July 10th. Report for America, local journalism, national service. Learn more at reportforamerica.org. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.